1955, Vincent Zigges trekked through the harsh jungles of the New Guinea Highlands with his guide, a member of the Foray people named Apokono. It took the Lithuanian-born doctor and his companion four days to cover 50 miles. Along their way to their destination, Apokono showed Zigges into a hut where a woman, who looked to be in her 30s, sat huddled in a corner. She was thin, ravaged by disease, and her glassy eyes stared at the ceiling. She was sick. Occasionally, a tremor pulsed through her body. The guide explained she had fallen prey to sorcery. Someone had cursed her with an evil spirit. Zigis practiced his own brand of magic, Western medicine. He promised that she would not die as he rubbed a muscle and joint balm into her skin, saying, the bad spirit will leave her. He wanted to earn the Fori people's trust. When he was done, Zigis stood back and commanded the woman to get on her feet. Writhing and groaning in agony, she tried to stand, but couldn't. Her tremors only became more violent. She seemed to lose control of all emotions and broke out into an eerie laugh. Zigis stood dumbfounded. But Apicono wasn't surprised. He ushered the doctor back outside and told him it was no use. His Western medicine wouldn't win. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our final episode on Fatal Familial Insomnia, or FFI, a mysterious disease that renders patients unable to sleep before it ultimately kills them. Last time, we examined one family's battle against FFI, spanning from the 1700s to the 1990s. We also tracked one couple's search for a cure. This time, we'll follow a scientific investigation around the world as it tries to uncover the truth behind FFI. Infected sheep, a tribe in New Guinea, and hollowed-out brains converge in a Nobel Prize-winning discovery. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem 
of a detour. For centuries, an Italian family who we'll call the Mattiellos lived with what they believed to be a curse. They didn't know why or how, but when members reached a certain age, they'd inexplicably fall ill. Their symptoms included terrible sweats, tremors, and incessant bouts of insomnia. Eventually, the curse would kill them. Generations died before two members of the Mattiello family, Lizzie and Ignazio, sought help. They reached out to doctors at a sleep clinic in Bologna who immediately took an interest in the affliction. In time, members of the Mattiello family signed on to become research subjects, and officials gave the ailment a name, Fatal Familial Insomnia, or FFI. The sleep team didn't develop a cure. The Mattiellos continued to succumb to their ailments. But after so many years, experts were able to observe the symptoms and stages of FFI and they posthumously collected brain samples for future research. In the late 1980s, the sleep team in Bologna shared the results of their research. But the studies didn't garner much attention, and the Mattiello's reputations suffered from the little attention they did receive. Their neighbors began gossiping behind their backs. Seeking privacy, many members of the family retreated from the public eye. Around the same time, Pierluigi Gambetti, a neuropathologist in Cleveland who worked with the sleep team in Bologna, started examining some of the Mattiello's brain samples. And he made a discovery. FFI left holes in the thalamus, a small structure located near the base of the brain. Gambetti knew of one other illness that created holes in the thalamus, a mysterious affliction called Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, or CJD. Other symptoms of CJD are impaired cognitive function, blurred vision or blindness, and difficulty speaking or swallowing. Most patients with CJD died within one year of its onset. Gambetti discussed his findings with his associates. If FFI and CJD were truly related and the leading scientific theory was correct, the root cause of the Mattiello's insomnia was a microscopic protein called the prion. Gambetti called Lisi and Ignazio and told them about his suspicions. But he may have been nervous about delivering the news. Historically, prion theory, the leading explanation for what causes a group of rare fatal neurodegenerative diseases called transmissible spongiform encephalopathies, or TSEs, had attracted some controversy. To fully explain, let's travel back in time to 18th century England, a time when Great Britain was at risk of food shortages and overpopulation. Amidst this turmoil, a man named Robert Bakewell saw a business opportunity. If he could breed a small bone sheep that had plump breasts and thighs, the demand would go through the roof and he'd be rich. But to create an animal with those proportions, Bakewell resorted to a controversial technique called breeding in and in. This involved inbreeding favorable rams with their offspring. Though widely considered animal abuse now, Bakewell's efforts worked. 
Through careful selection, he produced sheep with a lot of meat on their bones, triple the average at the time. Bakewell's farm expanded, and his success caught the eye of his competitors. Soon, his main rival, Sir Joseph Banks, began adopting Bakewell's brutal breeding techniques to produce a longer-lasting merino wool. Bakewell's expansion came with trade-offs. In addition to land disputes, Banks and Bakewell both saw a strange sickness pop up on their farms. Though they butted heads in public, the rivals saw their once-prized sheep now falling prey to a strange disease. First, the sheep would become sexually aggressive and anxious. Then, they'd isolate themselves from the rest of the flock and seemingly develop an insatiable itch. Describing the phenomenon, author D.T. Max wrote, quote, Feeling this itch most acutely on its back and the top of its tail, the sheep will scrape these parts bloody against posts, walls, rocks, against anything it could find, looking for relief. Farmers soon called the ultimately fatal disease scrapey. Naturally, the illness was bad for business, so farmers tried to keep it hidden by slaughtering infected sheep, a difficult task. Exact numbers are unknown, but some have estimated that around 5 to 10% of British sheep in this period developed scrapie. Some animal experts blamed swamp fumes, which were believed to also cause malaria at the time. Others suggested causes included overheated pens, too much food, too little food, and maggots burrowing into their brains. Whatever the cause, British farmers couldn't cure or contain the infections. The disease nearly pushed the country's meat industry to the brink of collapse. Until the British Empire colonized Australia. The new continent offered a solution to their problems. Plentiful resources and acres upon acres of rich pastures for cattle to graze. They no longer needed to raise as many animals domestically. By the mid-1800s, the sheep industry in England had all but ground to a halt. With time, inbreeding and the animal epidemic faded into the background. Scrapie became a distant memory. Yet it did strike the odd sheep every now and then. Scrapie passed from parent to lamb, or sometimes cropped up in herds that were inherently susceptible to the disease, thanks to their genes. In the 1930s, a veterinarian accidentally injected scrapie into sheep that then developed the sickness, which meant scrapie was transmissible through at least two methods, genetics and infection. Finally, about 15 years later, the scrapie mystery hit a breakthrough. Researchers discovered it behaved much like a different disease, one that attacked humans. In 1953, a patrol officer encountered a young girl on the island of New Guinea, off the coast of Australia. She belonged to the Foray people, an indigenous community that, for years, existed in near isolation. She sat by a fire, shivering and violently shaking her head side to side, clearly sick. The patrol officer had seen these symptoms before among the Foray. Victims generally lost control of their limbs until they could no longer walk. They would sporadically burst into fits of laughter or tears. And there was no cure. The disease would eventually claim their life. 
The Foray people believed the disease was caused by sorcery, and nothing could prevent her death. They'd seen the sorcery kill too many others. Sorcery or sickness, Foray women, children, and elderly were dying at a rate that threatened to wipe their people out. They called the disease Kuru, the Foray word for shaking. After encountering the disease, Western researchers were left stumped. In 1957, the role of investigator in New Guinea fell to a 33-year-old named Daniel Carlton Geideshek. Geideshek was an American with a love of adventure and impossible challenges, and he became a leading figure in Kuru research. During his nine months of fieldwork and collecting samples for analysis, he recorded many important observations. Among them, he suggested, quote, The tremors and blurred speech all pointed to a chronic neurological disorder, fixed and pained faces and slow, clumsy, voluntary motion, apparently in an attempt to overcome tremors, were prominent also. Eventually, others noted the similarity to different diseases, like Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease and Scrapie. Researchers believe the ailments were caused by what Gaidushek called slow viruses and were somehow connected to the central nervous system. And because Kuru often occurred within the same family, at one point, Gaidushek believed it may be inherited, meaning that it was passed down from parent to child, generation after generation. But he had no way of confirming those hypotheses. On November 14, 1957, Geideshek and another doctor, Dr. Zigis, published some of their early research on Kuru in the New England Journal of Medicine. Newspapers and magazines dubbed the mysterious condition the Laughing Death. Geideshek felt that this term was appalling, but it was attention-grabbing. It sold papers and spread awareness. Perhaps most importantly, the coverage sparked an interest among the scientific community. In 1961, anthropologists Robert Glass and Shirley Lindenbaum arrived in New Guinea to study Kuru and to possibly find a cure. And by the end of their time in New Guinea, they proposed the basis of a new theory for the cause of Kuru. They believed it resulted from the Foray tradition of eating their dead. Up next, ritual cannibalism and the science behind prion diseases. We all have grief and traumas in our life, but that doesn't mean they have to control us. Hi, I'm David Kessler, host of Healing with David Kessler. For most of us, our instinct is to hide our pain and never discuss it. But as a grief and loss expert, I'm here to tell you, without a doubt, that talking is healing. Anger, abuse, guilt, shame. They're all part of grief and trauma. Healing with David Kessler gets to the root of these issues shares tips for persevering, and reveals that behind every dark emotion lies wisdom and hope. Loss and trauma may seem overwhelming, but healing is possible, and I'm here to help. 
Healing with David Kessler is a Spotify original from Parcast. Hear a new episode every Tuesday, free and only on Spotify. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now back to the story. By the 1960s, researchers connected a mysterious disease that mostly affected sheep, called scrapie, to kuru, an ailment almost exclusively found among the foray people of New Guinea. In 1961, anthropologist Robert Glass and Shirley Lindenbaum arrived in New Guinea to study the disease. They started with getting to know the foray culture. The foray people had a rich oral history. Elders provided first-hand accounts of Kuru's emergence sometime around the 1930s, which meant it was a relatively new affliction. Initially, Lindenbaum and Glass were inclined to agree with Geideshek's theory that Kuru was inherited and wanted to prove that it was passed down from mother to child. But as they learned more about the Foray people's traditions, their minds changed. As it turned out, the foray didn't have a traditional definition of family. Individual households weren't necessarily biologically related. They embraced the concept of chosen family, valuing those who proved useful, loyal, and caring. The foray also took the term brothers-in-arms literally. If two men served together in war, they were considered kin. This completely undermined Gaidushek's theory that Kuru was passed down genetically. The infected women and children weren't always biologically related, so the existence of a Kuru gene didn't make sense. Once again, researchers had to go back to the drawing board. But it wasn't long before Lindenbaum and Glass made a breakthrough. The anthropologists learned the foray practiced a form of ritualized cannibalism. When someone died, it was tradition for foray women to prepare the body to be consumed. This included every part of the body except the gallbladder, which was too bitter. It was believed the flesh of the dead had symbolic significance. The ritual was considered an act of love, but it also served a practical purpose. It offered nutrition. As such, Healthy men typically abstained from these meals, and the meat was given to those who needed it most, the women, children, and elderly. And foray women were traditionally the ones to consume the brain. For Lindenbaum and Glass, everything started to fall into place. The demographics participating in ceremonial cannibalism were the same as the ones suffering from guru. Even the timeline of the disease supported a connection between the two. According to Lindenbaum and Glass, the foray began practicing cannibalism no earlier than the start of the 1900s. Then, at the dawn of the 20th century, the practice of eating the dead began, 
not long before Kuru appeared. In fact, some of the foray told Lindenbaum and Glass that the first people to ever develop Kuru were then eaten. Plus, once white missionaries arrived in New Guinea, they advised the foray to stop the cannibalism, which they did without a fuss. And ever since, the disease slowly started to become less common. By the time Lindenbaum and Glass reported their theory, Daniel Geidersheck was developing a new theory of his own. He knew Kuru and Scrapey were contagious through direct consumption or injection. So he had an idea. Geidersheck injected chimpanzees with Kuru, Scrapey, and CJD cells and waited. Once the test animals died, he removed their brains and dissected them for analysis. Sure enough, he saw the same spongy holes for each of the three diseases. For Geidesheck, this was convincing evidence that these three diseases were caused by the same infectious agent. Now, he just needed to find his so-called slow virus. At their core, viruses are microscopic strands of DNA or RNA wrapped up in a protein coat. Since the tiny agents cannot replicate on their own, they infect living cells to produce more copies of themselves. Geidesheck and other researchers believed that if he put vials of the Kuru-infected tissue in a centrifuge machine, they might be able to see the particles separated out by density. Yet once the device spun the vials, all the researchers found inside the machine were bits of the protein coat. Nothing that they believed could lead to the creation of a virus. Geidesheck knew other scientists had run into similar frustrations with their work on scrapey particles. For years, they tried to use high heat, radiation, soap, and water to kill whatever virus caused the ailment, tactics that worked on most others. But nothing seemed to eradicate whatever the infectious agent was. Which is why, by the 1970s, some researchers, like the young chemist Stanley Prusiner, proposed a very controversial idea, that the infecting agent wasn't a virus at all, but the proteins themselves. This went against all popular science. Proteins aren't alive, so it was believed that they couldn't be infectious. When Prusiner first shared his idea, many in the scientific community basically laughed it off. Prusiner's team injected infected tissue into 10,000 mice. Over a decade, they found ways to make the infection easier to study. And eventually, the results showed he was right. Protein-killing chemicals, as opposed to virus-killing chemicals, weakened the infected cells in the mice. Prusiner put forward strong evidence suggesting that Kuru, Scrapey, and CJD were caused by infectious proteins. As for how proteins became infectious agents, he had a thought. When proteins form, they produce strings that fold together, creating three-dimensional structures. Their specific structure determines their function, and they usually have only one stable form. In the case of prion diseases, Prusiner proposed that when bad proteins came into contact with healthy ones, the healthy protein had two options. It could hold its original shape, or learn the new pattern, folding incorrectly. 
The body would then repeat this process until it spread and killed the patient. And it appeared that these proteins could be passed on in different ways, through infection, like in the case of Kuru and the Foray people, genetically, like in the scrapey sheep, and they could even be created through sporadic manifestation. Identifying these proteins was a major breakthrough for Stanley Prusiner's career. And yet, something was holding him back. The name stunk. Daniel Gaidashek's term, slow viruses, was in a way obsolete. Prusiner's team proved there was no virus. Some scientists proposed clunky names, like transmissible viral spongiform encephalopathy and proteinaceous infectious particle. But Prusiner wanted something catchy, so he suggested the name prion particle. To his colleagues, the similarity between prion and Prusiner was obvious. He was known to some in the scientific community as a divisive figure with a large ego. Prusiner apparently ordered his research team around ruthlessly, despite the fact that they shouldered much of his grunt work. And allegedly, when an employee quit, Prusiner would threaten to ruin their career if they chose to work in the same field. Prusiner was also loath to give credit to his contemporaries for their contributions to prion theory, including Daniel Gaidushek. But in the late 1980s, Prusiner struggled to prove the more nuanced elements of prion theory, like how the one prion protein creates different diseases. He believed the difference between Kuru, Scrapey, and CJD had something to do with how the proteins structured themselves. He just couldn't find evidence. Then, Prusiner crossed paths with an Italian family whose members had been dying from insomnia for centuries. Up next, Fatal Familial Insomnia meets the Prion. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, back to the story. In the 1980s, Stanley Prusiner discovered the prion, a misfolding protein behind Scrapey, Kuru, and CJD. The groundbreaking new form of infection could possibly help explain other rare neurodegenerative diseases around the world. By the 90s, Cleveland-based neuropathologist Pierluigi Gambetti was studying fatal familial insomnia, the Mattiello family curse. He wondered if perhaps FFI was connected to Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which also left holes in the brain. To figure that out, Gambetti contacted an old friend, Stanley Prusiner. Prusiner was intrigued. 
He also believed that Gambetti, the Mattiellos, and FFI could help his own work on how prions created different diseases. Although FFI was similar to CJD and Kuru, it uniquely attacked the host's ability to sleep. Through Gambetti, Prusiner acquired brain tissue samples from the Mattiello family. Then, he injected some mice with FFI tissue and the others with CJD. Months passed, and the results delighted Prusiner. Both groups of mice experienced discoordinated behavior and death, but only the FFI group developed insomnia. Prusiner took the experiment a step further. He purified the prion proteins from both rodent groups and weighed them. The two prions had different weights, likely due to unique patterns in the misfolding proteins. He had seemingly proved his hypothesis. He would go on to win the Nobel Prize for his work on prions. But in 1994, prion diseases made headlines for all the wrong reasons. A 16-year-old girl from Liverpool named Victoria Rimmer fell sick. She suffered memory loss, painful sensations, and loss of coordination in her limbs. Doctors eventually diagnosed her with a sporadic case of variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. But some questioned the diagnosis after British tabloids published a statement from her grandmother saying that Victoria ate a lot of hamburgers. Ten years earlier, in the mid-1980s, British cows began kicking their owners, trembling through pastures, and collapsing on their own before dying. Scientists called the sickness bovine spongiform encephalopathy, or BSE. The public preferred the informal name, mad cow disease. Stanley Prusiner heard the cow's brains were riddled with holes and offered his expertise to see if he could help with the outbreak. But Margaret Thatcher's cabinet assured him his services weren't needed. Great Britain had it under control. Investigators determined that the mad cow outbreak was caused by so-called cakes farmers were feeding the cows. These feed cakes were packed with proteins that kept cattle plump and lactating. The proteins and milk used to make them came from other animals, including sheep and cows, meaning farmers had turned their animals into unwitting cannibals. The meat industry placed new regulations on cattle farms. They hunted down sick cows and killed them to contain the disease. Then, the industry discontinued the feed cakes. Before long, British meat purveyors, as well as the government, were encouraging the public that the beef was safe. But years later, in the mid-90s, Young Britons, like Victoria Rimmer, were falling catatonic, and some were dying. And experts didn't know why. But Stanley Prusiner probably had a guess. He already knew that prions were not like most diseases. He'd already proven that prion diseases could transfer across species. He'd infected mice with CJD and FFI found in humans. And he maybe would have pointed this out if Great Britain had accepted his help. After news of the outbreak reached the masses, some estimated that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pounds of infected cow meat made its way into British grocery stores and butcher shops. 
At the time, specialists suggested an impending human outbreak could devastate the nation at an apocalyptic level. Fortunately, over the next 10 years, only around 150 people in Britain died from the human form of mad cow disease. Experts believe that the population's heterozygous gene pool saved them from annihilation. Researchers have found that a person's susceptibility to prion diseases depends on their genetic makeup. For example, if someone has two valine or methionine amino acids in a single gene, that makes them homozygous. If they have one valine and one methionine, they are heterozygous. In New Guinea, researchers discovered that the locals who died of Kuru were typically homozygous. The same was apparently also true in Britain. But millions of British citizens walking the streets today could be carriers of prions, and the meat industry struggled to ensure safety within global trade. While there's no evidence that infected meat likely crossed the Atlantic, sporadic BSE cases have popped up in the States. As recently as 2018, the Department of Agriculture confirmed its sixth case of BSE in 15 years. Unfortunately, there still isn't a cure for prion diseases. But Stanley Prusiner believes the proteins may play a role in other degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and multiple sclerosis. So continuing to study them could end up saving an untold amount of lives. And hopefully, one day, the field of prion research can be remembered for more than just its dark past. We've spoken about Prusiner's reputation as a man who may have been more interested in personal fame and glory than saving lives. But in 1997, Daniel Geideshek was convicted of child abuse. When a documentary team interviewed Geideshek shortly before his death in 2008, the disgraced researcher was open and proud of his predatory past. The resulting film, The Genius and the Boys, reflected on the late Nobel laureate's fallen legacy. Luckily, the future of Prion research is looking bright. Still, for the Mattiellos, time is precious. Family members grow up acutely aware that by the time they hit middle age, the disease that has killed so many of their loved ones could strike. For an average person, the chance of contracting FFI is about 1 in 30 million. For members of their family, it's a coin flip. But at least now they have the ability to choose to know what their future will likely look like. A test developed by neuropathologist Pierluigi Gambetti can detect whether someone will contract fatal familial insomnia in their lifetime before the disease actually attacks their system. Lizzy, whom we mentioned earlier, took the test and her results came back negative. But many of her family members chose not to. Perhaps like Lizzy's late uncle Silvano, they chose to treasure each day as a gift rather than burden themselves with the prospect of certain doom. Lizzy and Ignazio left the public spotlight after their plea for international support. Some in her family told D.T. Max, author of The Family That Couldn't Sleep, that they considered moving to America. Until a cure arrives, one thing is clear. 
the Mattiello family wants to live like any other. And hopefully, they can. Hopefully, they rest easy. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with a new episode. For more information on this case, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Family That Couldn't Sleep, A Medical Mystery by D.T. Max extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Daniel William Gonzalez, edited by Amber Hurley and Mackenzie Moore, with fact-checking by Bennett Logan and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Hi, I'm David Kessler, host of Healing with David Kessler. As an expert on grief and loss, I know that healing doesn't mean forgetting or getting over the trauma. It means that the trauma no longer controls you. Join me each week for insights on how to find peace and learn how it's possible to persevere through anything. Healing with David Kessler is a Spotify original from ParCast. Listen every Tuesday, free and only on Spotify.